This is the School Success Podcast, a podcast for school leaders to learn from other school leaders what's working and what's not, and to get inspiration and encouragement, as well as strategies to grow school enrollment, connect with families, retain teachers, recruit teachers, and everything in between. You guys are heroes, and I cannot thank you enough for pouring into this next generation that's coming behind us. My goal is you will take at least one thing away from every episode that you can take back to your school to make it better than it is right now. Please enjoy the School Success Podcast. Hey, School Success Makers. Today, we're joined by my new friend, Dr. Bobby White, out of the great state of Tennessee. He has a huge background in education, and when I heard about him and learned about him from LinkedIn, I was like, I got to have this guy on the podcast. So he is here today. So please enjoy this next episode of the School Success Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the School Success Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Slater, joined by a new friend out of Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Bobby White, who is the CEO of Fraser Community Schools. They run three amazing schools in the area, and he's going to dive into all of that in here in just a few seconds, but I don't want to take any thunder away from him. I'm going to pass it off to Bobby to introduce himself. Dr. Bobby, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you for having me, sir. Hey, I am Bobby White from Memphis, Tennessee. I run a a small charter network of three schools, a high school and two middle schools. They are not your traditional schools. They are your traditional charter schools, like, you know, one grade at a time, application process, what have you. Our schools are schools that were the lowest performing in the state. And as a result of the state's initiative called the Achievement School District, my team and I were afforded the opportunity to be able to absorb these schools with their current zones, students, families, community, and become the charter operator of choice to serve those babies. It is work that not a lot of folk around the country or not a lot of folk are excited about wanting to do that work because it is the most challenging work. Uh, because these are the babies who they don't have a, a way or the opportunity or their families don't have the choice to be able to get them to a choice charter or a magnet or an optional school. You really don't have a choice if your parents don't have the means to get you somewhere else. And so the reason why I, I'm so excited and get up on fire about this work every day is because I understand that those are the babies that that's who I was. You know, those are the kids that need because their parents don't have access. And if we don't have someone in the space that's concerned about kids who don't have access, then that means that we're just kind of perpetuating this whole ideology that there are haves and have nots and our schools are just warehouses for the have nots. Certain schools are anyway. And so that's the world that we live in. Uh, and it's challenging, but oh my God, it is what I'm so excited about and that I wake up every morning knowing that it's my purpose. I love this. I love this. You take on these three schools. I mean, does that come with you guys get your own buses and stuff that you can pick up kids or because I know charters typically they that's a little different ballgame because it's not a just like a regular public school. But how does that work for the bus side? So. Backing up a bit, I don't want anybody to believe that as a former principal (laughs) teacher, football coach, basketball coach, track coach, baseball coach, that when I left the former Memphis City Schools, that I was immediately able to have the bandwidth to absorb three full schools. So it was a process. So there was a fellowship that I was a part of where I trained to understand the charter world and learn how to operate the business side of schools. I was a principal. And so I understood schooling, but not necessarily the entirety of how the work is done. So I say that just to say, and I took two years um, in a fellowship called the Tennessee Charter School Center is who provided me with the opportunity for the fellowship. The fellowship was called the Entrepreneurial Fellows Program, whereby I was able to travel the country for two years and train or follow shadow with CEOs, CFOs, COOs of KIPP, uh, but the larger, yes, prep, the larger 
charter organizations around the country. And so during that time, I submitted an application to take over the first school, right? And the first school happened to be, I was given a choice of two schools and those two schools were in the community that I grew up in. And as, as fate would have it, those two schools were probably two of the worst high schools in the country. If you look at Tennessee as being ranked number 48 and 48 in this country, and this community, the community of Frazier, having 12 of the 14 schools in that community were all a part of the bottom 5%. Wow. One could argue that those two high schools being in the bottom 5% of schools in the state of Tennessee and the state of Tennessee being number 48, that those were maybe the a couple of the worst high schools in, in the country. And so anyway, needless to say, I took over, I decided on the school that I graduated from, you know, which is the power behind that within itself. Like these are the halls that I walked. These are, I was here, I'm 50 now. I recently turned 50 in January and I've been gray for a long time, but I was gray in high school. But anyway, my beard didn't turn gray until I really started uh, doing this work at the leadership level. I was fine as a football coach. But as soon as I started becoming a principal, oh my God, the gray game. But anyway, <laughs> so I took over the high school that, that I graduated from and I thought it was time to rebrand it. And, and I promise you, I'm going to get to what you asked me, but I thought it was relevant to, to, to tell this part of the story. And so I thought it was time to rebrand it. And so I, I changed the name to MLK College Prep. There was no, believe it or not, there was no King High School in Memphis. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Well, everybody says this, like, really? I was like, yeah. When you live here, you didn't re even recognize it. Until hmm. so I was like, oh, well, we're going to name this school. Oh. It's obvious what we need to name the school because <laughs> we don't have a King High School here. So anyway, I took over that school in 2013, which is what, and we were like eight years into it, to the first school, right? And then as we were successful there, the State Department said, hey, we know you are, you really are about community, for community. You see the school as center of community. There is another school where one of our operators is deciding that they no longer want to run that school. We either need to send it back to the larger district, or they're, if they're if you apply to the MOU and and you meet the criteria, then you we will allow you to absorb that school as well. And so one thing led to another, and over a four or over a five year period, we went from one school to three schools, and we've had three schools over the last for the last three years. That being said, your question to your question about kind of like some of the operations. Because we are the zoned school, we follow the traditional district kind of rules. Meaning if the babies were, if the babies are zoned to us and they live outside of that 1.5 mile walking radius, then absolutely we have buses. Okay. But we're not the charter organization. So that's the reason why before I, I talked about us not being the traditional charter model. If they do not live in our zone, we are not sending buses to a different part of the city that we've recruited and bringing kids into the neighborhood. Our responsibility are the kids in that neighborhood that are zoned to us. It's kind of hard for a lot of folks to wrap their mind around because most districts around the country are open enrollment. You know, parents apply to different you know schools and you got the first second third fourth choice all those well we don't have that here where your zip code determines your school which you all know you know that's going to that's a whole nother conversation right <laughs> and that's the reason why i'm so passionate about like it's different because we don't have the open enrollment if the schools that are in those zip codes with those kids that are in the highest crime rate, one of the highest poverty rates in the country, you know, all of the different social ills that ail our communities. If you happen to live in that area and your baby has to go to that school, it shouldn't be a death sentence. Mm -hmm. 
it shouldn't mean that you're automatically going to be cheap labor or a prisoner. And so for me, I want all school district leaders around the country like to like recognize if you don't really intentionally put resources and try to operate schools in those areas from a standpoint of understanding that if you don't think about it in an intentional way, what you're doing is you are a part of the school to prison pipeline. We talk about, oh, we're not. No, no, you're part of it. Because if that school that is in a high crime, high poverty area is not provided the right resources, the proper teachers, the proper administrators, and that school continues to operate the way that it always has, then you by default, de facto, you have decided that you're okay with those babies being cheap labor and prisoners. Because let's be clear, in America, we got to have cheap labor and prisoners. Who, who's going to produce them for us? Mm. Our schools do. And we sit by and watch it. I know, I think I asked your question about the buses. <laughs> I got another one. We, we, you asked me about buses and my mind went somewhere else. Man, you're going to be like, I shouldn't talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got another one for you. So I'm thinking, I think you already answered it, but I want to make sure I clarify here. So you, let's say you, this the college prep school, MLK College Prep. It is like, let's say it becomes the best school in the whole country, the whole state. It's like the school you want to go to. Can kids outside of that zip code go to that school and have their parents drop them off? Or no, it's only if you live in that zip code you're allowed to go since you guys don't do open enrollment. Yep. So in Memphis, in the larger district, no, they would not be able to come unless they were able to get a transfer and come into the school. Right. Because my schools are not under the LEA of the local school district. My schools are through the State Department. As a result, any child student in the city of Memphis who is currently attending a low performing school can come to our school. Because our job is to support the babies who are in low-performing schools, right? Oh, my God, for saying that, like, my, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I would love for us to get to that point, you know, where we are the school that everyone wants to attend. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Can I call you, Mitchell? Is it going? Of course, please. Okay. Mitchell, no one wants to drive their child into the neighborhood where our schools are, mm. right? And as a Memphian, I understand that, right? I think all of us, when we live, you know, in the cities that we live in, we understand the neighborhoods where people are just like, ah, you know? And so again, my fire, in my drive and my purpose as it relates to how I approach this work every day is kind of like the kids and the families is like it's us against the world. Like nobody believes in us. Nobody outside of this community even wants to come across this part of the town. The only way we can show everyone just how valuable you are, how important you are, how great you are is for us to change the narrative as it relates to how we perform academically. So then that's, that is those things happen incrementally. There is no way overnight, 90% of your kids are below grade level and all of a sudden your data switches. You know, all of a sudden you're blowing it out of, you know, blowing it out of the water. It's not going to happen. It takes time. And so for me, there are pieces to the work. And the first piece is like being extremely intentional about your parental engagement and having second piece is having clear expectations for students that are not viewed as rules, but that are viewed as expectations around greatness. It makes sense. And just actually understanding the challenges that they face because of the trauma like being a trauma-informed school and organization and understanding 
that this past weekend, there was someone murdered in the community. There are three to five degrees of separation of all of the students in our schools from whoever was murdered because of the community, how close the community is. If you don't understand that as an educator and like intentionally build your program and attach your resources around the trauma that they face and bring into the schools, then you're never going to actually start to move that needle the way that you need to need to academically. I don't care how robust your curriculum is, how strong and scientifically based or pedagogically based your instructional practices are. If you don't figure out that other side of it, the success that you want is not going to be there. I have a prime example. So I am a Broad, Broad alum, Broad Superintendent Academy. And so Superintendent Runsey, who was the superintendent in Broward County, I want to say Broward or Brevard. I think it's Broward. There's both of them are counties. Both of them, but the one where the Parkland shootings took the Parkland. Oh, Broward. Broward, Superintendent Runsey. So he was someone that I, you know, met during my time in the Broad Superintendent Academy. And he talked about that day. We he would he was kind of training us on what you know emergency media looks like. You know, I'm when I become a superintendent one day, like, hey, here if this happens, here's what you need to do. So, but he and I talked off offline about the data. And how this was a school in a very affluent neighborhood where they really weren't ever concerned about academic data points. And just make a long story short, the how the bottom dropped out of some of their data as a result of this traumatic experience that the kids went through. Now, let's be clear. A school shooting is the most traumatic thing any child could ever go through. But I want people to recognize that in high poverty, high crime areas, there is ongoing trauma similar to that daily that the students that we serve endure. But because we don't see when they endure it, we don't recognize that that trauma is impacting their ability to learn. He talked about, and I won't go into details, he talked about like what the data looked like the year before and the year of. And let's be clear, they had grief ponies, grief dogs. People came all around the country to pour into those babies, like well they should. So they had all of the resources they needed. They were already affluent. They were already, they were not kids that were struggling for anything financially, what have you. Their data was impacted through trauma. The babies that we serve, man, they walk past yellow tape every day. Mm. But nobody ever says, maybe that's the reason why there's a gap in the learning. Maybe there's a reason why the data, you know, you know, why are they not achieving at the level of their schools? And it's like, man, you know, this thing is simple to me. Poverty, and like, which one do you fix first? Which do you fix? First, poverty, education, whatever. Hey, the layers are so, the onion has so many layers in when it comes to this. But the one thing that I've been, I'm very clear about, the trauma that our kids in neighborhoods, like many of the ones around the country that we all know about, until we start accepting and realizing that walking through yellow tape every morning, seeing on the news that your neighborhood is the one that everybody sees as the most dangerous in the city, seeing crime, different crimes that are committed being blasted on the news every day from your community, being told at the school by your teachers that, oh, I was almost afraid to come in this morning because all of those things over time make beat that child up 
that child lives in that community from kindergarten to 12th grade. At what point does that child believe that they're great? At what point does that child believe that they're supposed to be able to compete in society and that they can do well academically? If somebody's not intentional about doing that, if you don't have a great principal, because I believe the principalship is the greatest job in education, if you don't have a great principal that really can inspire, motivate, capture, capture their hearts and make them believe that they're a part of something greater than they've ever been before, then they will fall into what has always been perpetuated in our society as schools in certain communities become warehouses for poor, cheap labor and prisoners. I believe that if 16 years from now, every student in America were to you know, graduate from some, every kindergartner would graduate from some post-secondary institution with credentials to demand their seat at the proverbial table like every student in america what actually happens then are there enough seats at the table because those kids who prepared themselves are not going to just accept the cheap laborious jobs so is our job as educators to ensure that that never happens and are we unconsciously creating, continuing to make the system work in a way that affords America the opportunity to continue to be who we have been? When all of us talking about, all of us talk about, we want to be the change that we want to see, and you know, we want to dismantle the system. Are we not really the system? and perpetuating it with all of our actions right you know so i know that if they all demanded their seats at the table in 16 years from actually being prepared and how would they be prepared because schools would be intentional about preparing them and we know how to prepare them and if we get the resources to do it we could and if we prepared them and they all demanded their seats at the table man is not enough seats at the table therefore as Karl Marx would say, the pro proletariat would then, you know, start to rise and think through differently, like how we should be governed. That's not going to happen. So guess what we do as educators? We ensure that we perpetuate all of the things that have always been done in an effort to subconsciously get back to just the way things have always been. It makes sense. We get excited about when a school, a child from an impoverished environment and challenging environment, they make it like, oh, like they were, there was this meritocracy and they just were better and they rose above the others. You know, that's just a bit luckier than the other kids. Like, let's be clear. If the systems were different and everything was designed for every child to be successful, without us, then we would do what we needed to do to ensure that they're successful in the private schools i don't know a private school where kids fail because this, you, you parents pay good money so that their kids will be successful so the people who work there ensure that those kids are successful is that how we operate our schools mm -hmm. so anyway i want to make sure people are really understanding my point in all of this i want everyone to reflect on their place in the space of this work and how we really move the needle by understanding all of the dynamics and the nuances so that we can start to dismantle the system. I was telling my family, which is my staff, the folks that I serve alongside on a daily basis on yesterday, I said, I just watched Independence Day on this weekend. And I was like, I know we keep using the word dismantle. And I was like, you know what? Dismantling means that you are upfront and people know what you're doing. And you're trying to take something apart. I said, maybe we need to all infiltrate and upload a virus. And while we're inside, then we can then, then take apart the system that 
we know to be faulty and change it through the through it being virus. I was like I should have, I was laying on the couch and watching Independence Day and I was like, how does this impact education? <laughs> you know, that's where my mind always goes. So if people were like, everybody uses dismantle, Dr. White. Why are you saying it's like, hey, I'm just saying, I'm not saying let's get rid of the word dismantle, but I'm just like, maybe we need to be a bit more stealth. Because, sir, you do know that we just come off of a pandemic every opportunity in the world to change the system we had two years of kids not being in school adults not like where we there were some lessons learned from distance learning or virtual learning virtual school how whatever you want to call it that i don't even think that now that we're fully back in 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 place people are even taking advantage of those lessons mm. there were kids that thrived in that space now they're back in school getting in trouble. Like, come on now. Like, what is the goal? <laughs> What's the goal? So I just think that we had a, a very, you know, an opportunity with and even like that was kind of like the virus that I'm talking about, like with the independent with Independence Day. For those folks who aren't, I'm 50, but for those folks who don't know, like they uploaded a virus and it made the aliens vulnerable. So if you look at COVID, it was the virus that made education vulnerable mm. to being able to be rehashed and be reborn. Did we take that opportunity? If we all been talking about we need to read dismantle and we had two years to kind of like figure it out. And all we've been doing is saying we can't wait to get back to normal. Why the hell are we talking about dismantling anything? Because we don't want to dismantle anything. Because it fits what we need for America to continue to be what America is. Man. All right. So the, here's my flip question to you. Because this is great. Yeah. Because I typically, like I mentioned, we talk about challenges and we go into what's yep. going good. You naturally just went into the, all the challenges, which is <laughs> awesome. So we don't have to even ask that one. But yeah, what what is... And I know this isn't a one minute answer, but I yeah. guess the condensed version, what do you see as the solution? Where, where do we need to, you know, obviously you got these three schools that you yeah. have the leadership over to be able to yeah. come up with an idea and, and push it forward. But you see this, you see this issue, this problem that's going on, but all right, what, how can we fix it? So the other school leaders who are listening, they're like, oh yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Now, what do we do about it? And thank you for that. Thank you for that question. I've been thinking about that long and hard and I've been, I started thinking about it pre-COVID um, as a Black-led organization. My organization was, the further I got away from being in schools every day, the more we resembled the schools that we all said we didn't want to be. I mean, again, we're talking about three full schools. We're not talking about like new stars, one grade at a time. So we're talking about like overnight, you know, you go from, you know, three or four employees as you're building the organization out to 160 employees in five years, right? And you go from one school and X number of dollars to three schools and $20 million. Like it just starts to change. And so me not being as focused on the day-to-day -day and the why, we became exactly what I started this organization to fight. Mm -hmm. And so there was a time, you know, right after, you know, there's all these things that started happening in America with these executions of black men publicly, right? And George Floyd was kind of like the, the straw or the tip of the iceberg. And so many of my colleagues around the country that don't look like me were just kind of like, you know, Bobby, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And in my conversations with them, I started to look at me and reflect on what the hell are we doing? Why are my schools leading in suspensions and exclusionary practices? Hmm. So I am embarked on thinking through what my passion is, and that's like being actively anti-racist and, you know, folks about historical context about 
know, whiteness and the structure of race and racist biology and racist social construct and racist power in America and how that impacts everything and all the institutions and how it really truly impacts schools as a result of unconscious and implicit bias. That said, what I decided to do was change our approach to the work or enhance our approach, whereby we became started to plan out what being an actively anti-racist school organization looked like. To be clear, this is absolutely nothing to do with the curriculum. There are so many, you know, are they let's ban CRT and all this stuff that's going on around the country and the legislators, you know, as a result of what the federal the, what the feds did a few years back under 45's leadership. There are many local states that then followed suit with legislation to ban certain types of trainings and teachings, which I perfectly understand. Laws are laws, what it is, right? Our approach has absolutely nothing to do with the curriculum. Nothing to do with the curriculum. It is designed to see the work from a lens that affords us the opportunity to understand why the structural and institutional racism that exists in America has, even for predominant for predominantly black staff all of us have those unconscious biases and are racist in our own way even towards our own people because of the historical context that we've all lived through that said we developed a policy to where we were going to see the work through three critical pillars one our disciplinary practices our parental engagement and our how we're dealing with trauma in our schools. The large overriding theme is always the rigor and the curriculum that we use and it being one that is comp comparable to the curriculum that is being used in other dis school districts for more fluent students. However, those three pillars, the disciplinary practices, our parent engagement, seeing things from trauma that kids ex experience. And my was for me, the way to be actively anti-racist, if you want to use the word equity, what have you, and it doesn't offend you as much. But when you start to see see things from that lens, then this whole Black Lives Matters thing is not as important because you really are, you don't have to say those things because you're doing it and you're living it. The disciplinary practices, let's be clear. The black boy who's six foot one and dark skin in the ninth grade and walks down the hall with a hoodie and says a cuss word in the presence of a teacher in most schools, he's getting suspended. The a different person of a different hue, if you will, that's the same size, same hoodie, walks down the hall, mumbles under his breath with something. There is a concern. He must be, there must be something going on at home. Let's send him to the guidance counselor. Let's get the social worker involved. I'm, let's be clear. I just think that that black boy deserves the same thing. And the only way we can do that is we start talking about why are we making different decisions on the young black student than on the white student? Just call it out. Like, why are we making different decisions? It's because of these unconscious biases that we have based on the historical context and framework, instructional, excuse me, institutional and structural racism in our country. It makes us all make certain decisions that if we look back on them, we'd be like, I didn't do that, Dip. Yeah, you did, right? And so my staff pushed back. The majority of, look, Memphis is a predominantly black city. You know, I don't have a whole lot of, Memphis is black and white. And so you hear me say black or white because the whole brown, black, brown, there, there aren't a lot of Latinx folk in Memphis, right? And so, you know, it's black and white. And so literally I may have 5% of my staff is white and maybe 2% of my students are white. 
right? And 1% maybe being Latinx. And so my staff was pushing back, like, why, why are you talking about being an actively anti-racist organization? All of us are black. We're not racist against our own people. To the contrary. Yes, you are. <laughs> and then I think that's the thing that will kind of break up this partisanship around this good, bad binary around racism. We all are racist in our own ways because we're all a part of the the institutions that are racist. And we they are unconscious. Because I don't believe that the majority of Americans would intentionally do the things that we do. But when you do an equity audit, what you see is, what does the data say about how you're treating your black boys? Their grades, because I don't want to start with discipline, but their grades, their attendance, number of suspensions, the number of times they're inside of counseling spaces, the number of times they are given rewards, the number of times they are hot. Like, talk to me about that. And you'll say, well, they just don't deserve it. Do they not really deserve it? Or is that an unconscious bias that you have for them? Right. And so what we did is we called that out and we're having ongoing professional development about it. The way I started it, sir, was started with the historical context around racism. I wanted to talk about like the beginning of the existence of whiteness as a thing for the purpose of power and separation during slavery and, and brought us up to through slavery, through emancipation, through Jim Crow, you know, through the civil rights movement. I'm one of those folks that actually thinks the civil rights movement set us back, but that's another conversation. That's another podcast. But through that, this just set the tone around, here's why we are where we are. Here's why we are where we are today. Here's how it impacts schooling. Here's what we're going to do about it. And so we are in the process of having ongoing professional development about that. I think that as I am you know, speaking with all of my colleagues around the country via the opportunity to have this conversation with you on this podcast, which I certainly do appreciate the opportunity, is just be true to yourself about what's actually going on in your schools and think through it from a lens of do we truly are we truly valuing each and every student and do we truly believe that all these students are supposed to end up being successful one day and if we do our actions align to that mm. with everything from the way we fund schools like what are you putting your money in all right your funding should follow what you truly believe if not then i think there's some reflection is i am so not happy with where my organization is like super transparent about that i don't think that we have had as the type of folk that are as aligned and purpose driven as i am on a daily basis and because i was so busy i was so busy like the business side of the work and trying to grow and fundraise and all those things that i, I kind of lost sight of who we were but I'm back locked and loaded and pretty dangerous when I know where the goal is, right? Love so, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I want to make sure we're, I'm respectful of your time too. I know we chatted about that beforehand. Yeah, so, I, like, so we could we talk about, you know, the, obviously these challenges. I'd love to hear, is there even just one of the biggest things that stands out to you that's going really, really good that you're really proud of that these schools are doing that you're doing with your organization? Yes, sir. Oh my God, man. You spot on with your questions. Pretty good. You've been doing this for a while, right? As I want to talk about that. It, it, within our anti-racist initiative, which we want don't want to call it anti-racist initiative anymore. We want to call it this is who we are as an organization. We decided that at our middle schools, we were going to get rid of our school officers and add a social in their place and add a hall monitor. So to support all of the other sports that we already had with the addition of a restorative practice person right so the school now our middle schools now have principal and assistant principal a dean of discipline a restorative practice person a social worker a guidance counselor and a hall monitor so those last three or four people that i talked about their job is solely to handle all of the challenges that our babies have mm. i was crazy enough to believe that if we have enough people grown folks in the building to make sure 
kids feel safe. Because I'm one of those people that believe, really believes the kids only like kind of cut up when they think that the adults are scared of the people that they're afraid of. If they know that the adults are not afraid of the people that they're afraid of, then kids will actually act like kids and actually try and actually learn. Like they're, they're all tough and hard because they see somebody over there that they're afraid of and they may think that the adults are afraid of them as well. But that's just my theory. And then when I was a principal, I like really made sure. Let's be clear. All these baby gangsters around here that y'all are afraid of, Dr. White's not afraid of them. They're not going to do anything to you. <laughs> right? You know, and again, this is from a frame of being in, you know, the schools that I've worked in that I really, that I prefer to continue to work in are the ones where they are the highest need, highest crime rate, highest poverty in communities. And so I say those things from the greatest level of respect for my colleagues around the country who don't have those same challenges, right? But those are challenges in some of our schools that I just want to make sure I call out. Like, it's okay to understand that this is the kind of school you're in and this is what you need to do for those babies. They need to feel safe. And so with us deciding, I wanted to say, I felt like officers in middle schools or even in elementary schools just send a message that I just was very uncomfortable with. And so as we started to think about being actively anti-racist, I said, now we can't do this in the high school yet. And but at some point, I'd love to do it at the high school, but we're going to remove the officers from our middle schools and we're going to add that additional staff. And we're going to be very intentional because, you know, folks are going to say, like, well, just adding that staff doesn't mean anything. But we're going to be very intentional about the technical side of the work because there's two sides. The adaptive, which is how you change the mindsets and how you move people's thoughts and how they really see the work or see the babies that they serve. And then the technical. Well, if you, you're telling me that I need to. I don't, I'm not supposed to suspend them and we're supposed to be thinking about what their challenges are and the trauma. How do I do that? So on one end, I've been in charge of the adaptive and moving the needle mentally. And then my staff, my family and the servants that the folks that I serve with, they put together a plan of here are the things that we're going to do when our child does this, where we were very prescriptive about and descriptive about what it was being super intentional. So teachers and everyone in the, org in the school would know here it's what's going to happen. And then having enough adults in the space to be able to address those issues in real time so that folks don't feel like, because adults can start to feel unsafe, right? And so us really moving forward with that, you know, I talked earlier about using your resources for what you believe, your, like our budget, we spend money on the things that we believe in and one of those things that we started to spend money on was this initiative and what i'll say sir is in the first year which was this past year our first year back from COVID, man the change in the number of suspensions were remarkable wow. i lord knows i wish i had the exact numbers but if we had a in the high school i know we had at least a 40% decrease in suspensions. In one of the middle schools, it was at least a 70% in suspensions. Wow. And in the other ones, it was close to 85% in suspensions. Just because, think about it. All, all we did was decided we're not going to use suspensions as the end, as our first option for challenges that our babies may be facing we because <laughs> dr white has also put all these additional folks in the building for us to use for behavioral challenges that our our babies have and we've had these conversations about the why i've never met a bad kid and i've never met a bad a parent who didn't want what was best for their child so they send the best that they have and the trauma that they bring, if we're not prepared to deal with it other than just sending them back home, why are we doing this? <laughs> why are we doing this, right? So I'm very proud of that. Spoke with our partners and the larger school district about that. 
and folks are kind of interested in, hey, tell us more. You know, we hear what the data is like, but what was the actual culture in the schools as a result of that data being dropping like that? And is it equating to academic achievement? Well, we got one year. Like this year, we're going to be much better at it because last year was just kind of more like, well, we don't want to suspend and we're trying to figure it out. But yeah. now we'll put all of the pieces together. Like, you know, we put students in tears based on some of the behaviors. And as a result of those tears, we put them in a platform called Branching Minds, which no, I want to give Branching Minds a plug, but like we put them in, in Branching Minds and they're tiered. And so if a student is in tier one or tier two, tier three, there's certain challenges that they're facing. Well, guess what? Our restorative practice person and our guidance counselor and our social worker are meeting with those students in groups to help mitigate some of those things that they're being challenged with because we're documenting everything that happens as opposed to, oh, this kid been to the office five times this week. They need to get suspension, suspension, right? So I'm extremely proud about that. And I've challenged my colleagues around the country like to really think through again, like what is our purpose? When we talk about school to prison pipeline, what part are we playing? And one thing, because I, listen, just read, I have made changes at the high school because of the misalignment of having a, someone who wanted to be a law and order leader. Look, I was a law and order leader when I was a principal. Look, right? Yeah, you want order, you want you respect, you want to you want to run your school the right way. But when you know that that ninth grade boy who's caught doing something, let's just say he's caught smoking marijuana. Many of our states is legal any darn way, but let's just say he's caught smoking marijuana. The statistics state that if that young man is expelled, he is 50% more likely to drop out of high school. Mm. So, and if they drop out of high school, you know what then happens? The, how the percentages are about them doing have the criminal behavior and them being a part of the system. So if on our watch, there was a ninth grade boy. Like, first of all, he's just got to high school. So something y'all wasn't doing to keep him from getting involved with the people who were doing that. So let's put that aside. How about we find out what's going on? We provide some type of A and D treatment, get the parents involved, get the social worker involved, make sure we're signing off on things that says, if you do this and this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, and we keep that young man in school. I'm not saying that there's no repercussions for the choice that was made, but we keep that young man in school and he doesn't become a part of the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. I think that that's about valuing and it goes back to like, oh, I said being actively anti-racist. Do you value him as a ninth grade black boy enough to say, one day you're gonna make contributions to society that are great, I want to make sure that right now, because it is one mistake, I'm not going to destroy you. When do all of us, like, do are all of us really thinking through it from that perspective? I, I think we get so caught up in all of the other that, you know, and then we're, we're fatigued when we have these situations that happen and we forget that's somebody's child. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a life that we have, we, literally are have decision-making power that could change the course of this young man's life. Right. How do we use that power? Man. Well, I, this has been incredible. I always have one final question for sure. everybody. And I know we got a few minutes, a few minutes left. Yeah. If you could give all the school leaders a piece of wisdom or advice for, straight from Dr. Bobby, what, what would that piece of advice be for all those school leaders? Real simple, real easy. Make sure you understand your purpose. Reflect on that. Once you're clear about your purpose, allow it to ground every decision that you make and don't waver on those decisions because we have to make decisions in isolation that everyone doesn't 
are not going to agree with. But if you're always grounding your decisions on your purpose, and if your purpose is truly aligned with the work that we do, it's about kids and about eradicating poverty, about being anti-racist, about lifting up, whatever it is that your purpose is grounded in this work, if you always come back to that as your center when you're making decisions, then don't waver when you're making them. And don't cow down when there are people that may be uh, in positions that could impact you, push you on those things, because you'll be able to sleep at night. And I promise you, the respect that you'll get for just being you and being true to you is something that will go a long way. And what's for you will be for you, and you'll get to the next stage of whatever it is you're trying to do. I love it. I love Sir, it. You- You've been absolutely amazing. I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. All of the the leaders around the country, look, y'all get some rest this summer. Y'all know we got to come back and do this all over again, right? So thank you. And and Bobby, thank you, man. I want to do a quick shout out to you. I can tell, I mean, I can see it. I can feel it, your passion for what you do and your students and that next generation and and building them up to be great members of society. I see it and I feel it. So I just want to say, man, keep up what you're doing because I absolutely love it. It's your your attitude and your extrovertness that I can see is very contagious. So <laughs> I, I love you, brother. I keep doing what you're doing, man. Okay. Florida State, Florida, this November, me and you. See you later, man. Let's do it. Have a great rest of your week. Well, another huge shout out and a thank you to Dr. Bobby White for taking time and being on the podcast. I loved our chat. I love his personality and I love what he's doing and I'm wishing him and his schools nothing but the best as they continue to grow and educate that next generation that's coming behind us. And if you're a school that's listening today and you need help growing your school's enrollment, maybe it's redoing your website, finding ways to rank higher online so more people can find you online and you can stop being the best kept secret of the school in your area. I've heard that multiple times. We don't want you to be the best kept secret. We want you to be out there so people know about you and we'd love to help you get there. You can check us out online, schoolsuccessmakers.com. That's schoolsuccessmakers.com. Or please join our private Facebook group just for school leaders called School Success Makers. It's a private group on Facebook just for school leaders called School Success Makers. And I'm personally in there and I'd love to see you in there as well. We'll be here next time with another amazing guest as usual on the School Success Podcast. We'll see you then.